0: you are about to take are to be taken with careful thought and prayer for in them you are committing yourselves exclusively one to the other wow you look great in blue but then again you look great in any color really you're so sweet why are all the good ones married don't worry you'll find someone to love and to cherish till death do us part now repeat after me
1: hello hey mike no no he's still at work yeah i know it's late he has to entertain the clients yeah it gets lonely sometimes
0: thanks well i'll call you if i need anything okay i promise i promise to love and to cherish you till death do us part what tokens do you have symbolizing these vows May this ring be a symbol of your pure and unending love for one another. Hey, some of us are going to dinner. You want to come? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Okay, let's go. As a symbol of my love, and with it pledge my loyalty and devotion...
1: as a symbol of my love and with it, pledge my loyalty and devotion as long as we both shall live.
0: The outside candles represent your lives up to this moment. We'll <laughs> be letting the center candle represent the union of your lives into one flesh. Power vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What God has brought together, let no man separate.
1: God intended for marriage to be sacred, God intended for marriage to be a covenant between a man and a woman. Who stand with each other and say, I'm committing myself to this person for the rest of my life. God intended for the marriage bed to be sacred. God intended for the physical part of the marriage relationship to be sacred. But we live in the real world and many times, in fact, oftentimes that covenant is broken. A few weeks ago, I talked about how marriage is a covenant to be kept for all of life and not a contract to try to get out of when somebody doesn't live up to their end of the deal. God intended for marriage to be a covenant. And if you could hear from people who have blown it and made that mistake and lived out what you just saw on the screen, they would say, take every measure you have to, to keep that out of your life. Take every measure you have to take to keep your marriage from looking like the one you just saw. Because they, like nobody else, could tell you what a long line of regret and pain and hurt is left by breaking the covenant that God instituted. The covenant that he put together when he said it's not good for mankind to be alone. They need partners. They need someone of the opposite sex to share their life with. And there's a lot of pain associated with messing up and goofing up that covenant. I've checked some stats over the last couple of weeks and found out that as many as 80% of marriages experience an affair. As many as 80%. What a tragedy. Today's the third week of a series called Love Affair. And I've been talking about how to have the right kind of affair, how to avoid the wrong kind of affair, how to fix things when they're messed up, how to make things better when they're on the rocks. Don't think if you're single today that, great, here's another message about marriage and I'm single and I could have been doing something else today. Don't check out on me. This stuff today, I promise I promise this is for you just as much as everybody else. And you can get something out of this. So don't check out. God had a lot to say about human relationships. In fact, in his word, he says everything we need to know that he has to say about human relationships. About 15 years ago, when my wife and I first got married, I was watching a Barbara Walters special. I don't know why, but I was. And on Barbara Walters was Billy Graham. The Reverend Billy Graham was being interviewed by Barbara Walters. And she was asking him about all of his life and reminding him of all the great things he had done as if he didn't know that. And she was talking to him about all the millions of people he's interacted with and touched. Tens of thousands of people have given their lives to Christ many more than that have come to hear him speak in arenas all over the world. He's met with heads of state. He's known presidents. I mean, everybody, even if you're not connected with the Christianity in some way, you know who Billy Graham is. And she said, Reverend Graham, if you had to look back on all of your life and say what your greatest accomplishment has been, what would it be? And she's thinking he's going to say something like this president, that president. And he said, my greatest accomplishment throughout life has been the fact that I've been faithful to my wife since the day we were married. And I remember thinking, "Yes, that's it. That's what I I want to be Billy Graham's age and say, I have been faithful to my wife since the day I stood there and said I do." Unfortunately, some people can't say that. They can't say they've made it. They can't say that they've been faithful to their spouse all that time and they've blown it before I even get started today you need to understand forgiveness is available to anybody anybody that's blown it anybody that's messed up anybody that's betrayed the marriage covenant forgiveness is available but I remember seeing that thinking okay I definitely want to stay faithful to my wife forever forever I never want to find myself in the arms of another woman, ever. So what am I going to do to make sure that doesn't happen? Because we live in a world where we're bombarded with temptation to do just the opposite all the time. So what can I do in my life to make sure when I'm his age, I can say, let me tell you about an accomplishment that God has allowed me to have in my life. How do you keep yourself from getting physically or emotionally involved with someone who is not your spouse. There's a story in the Old Testament about a man named David. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you've heard about David. Maybe you remember him from Sunday school as a child. David's the guy that, with his bare hands as a young boy, killed a lion and a bear. And then, when all these big warriors couldn't kill this giant, David killed a giant as a little boy. So he probably thought he was pretty tough. He probably thought he was all that. He probably thought he could handle anything. David is even called a man after God's own heart. Listen to an episode from the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent words to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. That story started the downward spiral of a man who was called a man after God's own heart. He messed up. He blew it. He totally messed things up. All because he found his heart and his hands attracted to another woman. All because he invited someone who was the wife of another into his bed, and he had sex with her, and she got pregnant. And then, and then the cover up began. Then it just got deeper and deeper. And David thought, "Well, I got to cover this up. She's showing up now. She's telling me she's pregnant." I, I'm in a mess. What am I going to do? So he thought, what I'll do is I'll get her husband to come in from the battlefield because he hasn't seen her for a long time and he's going to want to get busy with her. So I'll just send him over to her house and everything will be okay. And nobody will ever know. Well, Uriah came in and he wouldn't leave his master's palace because he was so devoted to his master. David gets up the next morning and sees him sleeping there by his doorstep and's like, Uriah, what are you doing? You've been on the battlefield for months. Your wife is over there. She's waiting. You need to go. And he said, I'm going to protect my master from his enemies. And he wouldn't go. So David thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. I'll impair his judgment. And then he'll go after his wife. So the next day, David got him drunk, kept him drunk all day long. But the next morning, David woke up. And there Uriah was again, sleeping at his master's door to protect him. So David thought, great, this guy's, I can't crack this guy. So he sends him out into the battlefield with a letter that says, send Uriah out onto the front lines and give the order to call all the troops back so he'll be killed. So David did that, and Uriah was killed. And he thought, it's all done. It's all covered up. Nobody knows. You know, it started way before the death of Uriah it started way back when David was out on a ledge. I was standing on a ledge once. I was six stories up with a big bungee cord strapped to my midsection. A bunch of people on the ground chanting my name. I didn't want to jump, but I thought it's much more disgraceful to walk back down the steps than it would be to risk my life and and jump into this thing down here. So I asked the guy, hey, uh, does that airbag, if this doesn't work, he goes, no, you can just have an open casket if, if that happens. So like, okay, I feel better now. And I'm standing on the edge and realizing that when I take the step, I can't come back. Once both feet leave the ledge, I'm done. I've made the decision, I've committed, and whatever consequences come after that, I have no control over. And finally, I jumped and I made it. It's okay. David was out on a ledge. Literally, David was on the roof of his palace. And he found himself out on a ledge staring across at a beautiful woman naked taking a bath. The way the houses were built in that time, they all had flat roofs. And they all had walls around the roof so you couldn't see your neighbor taking a bath because that's where people took baths. They took the water up there at midday and let the sun come down on it all day. It warmed it up and in the evening they would go take a bath. So if you were on your rooftop taking a bath, the person next to you couldn't see you But if somebody was up higher, they could look down on you. And there was only one thing higher, and that was the palace of the king. So here is the king walking around on the roof of the palace. And to see her, he had to get out on the ledge of the roof and kind of look out and look down and go, oh, hey, look at that. He couldn't have been back just walking around thinking, wow, probably should be off to war. Was there something I was supposed to do? And he had to be looking. He had to be out on the ledge making a conscious decision to look. And I wonder how many people came in today standing right on the edge, standing right where David was, right where I was on that bungee platform, to where you take the next step, There's no controlling the consequences that come after that. How many people came in today getting ready to live out what you saw played out on the screen in their relationship? How many people are ready to take that step and make an immoral decision that's going to haunt you for the rest of your life? You know, there's a lot of things that get people out on the ledge. For David, I think it was probably his pride. I mean, he killed a lion and a bear and... (laughs) I can look at a woman, I can kill a bear, I can kill a lion, I can kill this giant, there's no woman going to take me down, but she did. So he probably was feeling prideful. He was probably a little bored because all the other kings were off to war and here he is just walking around on his palace being a peeping tom, looking at all the women taking baths in the afternoon. A lot of things get people on the ledge. Stress can get you on the ledge. Stress can get you to a place where you'll do things you would never do normally. Stress can get you to a place where you're doing things that you never thought you would do. You're saying things you never thought you would say. You're looking at things you never thought you would look at, all because of stress. Not being content with your spouse can get you on the ledge in a quick way. Comparing your spouse to the looks of somebody else, to the actions of somebody else, comparing your spouse to the sex lives you see on TV or on the internet that aren't reality at all, making that comparison will get you on the ledge and put you in a place where the next step is the point of no return. And I wonder how many people walk through life, walked through this past week right here on the ledge, ready to take that step, where they're not going to be able to control the consequences that come after that. If you could hear from David today, if we could go back in time, pick him up, bring him here to LifePoint and say, David, talk to us. Tell us what you were thinking. Tell us what happened. Tell us what got you to where you were. David could probably give us a really good message. And I bet he would call it David's Lessons from the Ledge. Wouldn't that be a good title? So here's David. He's going to come to Life Point. He's going to give us his lessons from the ledge because he knows what it's like to stand out here on the ledge, and he's going to give us some lessons. Lesson number one I think David would give. If you're not where you're supposed to be, it's easier to do what you're not supposed to do. When I read the passage in 2 Samuel 11... It said all the other kings were off to war. It was springtime. It's what the kings were supposed to be doing. It's what God had called David to do, but he wasn't where he was supposed to be. So because he wasn't where he was supposed to be, he was not where God had called him to be. He was not living out what God had called him to do. He ended up doing what he wasn't supposed to do, and it made it easier because he's not out doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's got to fill up his time with something, and his wheels start to turn, his mind starts to work, and he realizes there's a bunch of women out there taking a bath. I think I'll have a look. He picks one out, and she comes back to his room, and then you know what happens next. David would say, when you're not where you're supposed to be, it's easier to do what you're not supposed to do. When you're not where you're supposed to be in your marriage with your husband, with your wife, when you're not where you're supposed to be emotionally, it's easier to do what you're not supposed to do. When you're not cultivating that relationship and working on it and serving the other person and extending forgiveness to the other person, it's very easy to do what you're not supposed to do. And that's one of the bits of advice I think David would give us. Another one is David would say... It costs you much more than you will want to pay. To take that leap off the ledge and go to the point of no return is going to cost you a lot more than you want to pay. It's not how you think it's going to be. You know how when you see movie previews, aren't all movie previews great? And you think, i got to see that movie. And you go to the movie and you realize well, all the funny lines are in the previews. I could have saved eight bucks. David would say, don't just pay attention to the previews, think about what the movie's gonna play out like. Think about the consequences. Because if you're on the ledge, David would say, Think it through. The previews are not reality. The movie stinks. The movie's terrible. You're only running the good parts through, the fun parts through your mind. Think about reality, think about the people you will hurt. Think about the people you will let down. Think about the pain you're going to cause. You know, David never wanted to displease God. I don't think David got up and said, today's the day I'm going to displease God. I just feel like it. I'm going to do it. But he did. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says, the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. Not just messing up and having sex with a woman that wasn't his wife, but then he lied about it. Then he lied about it again. And then he had somebody murdered. It costs him much more than he ever thought. Had he known that inviting this woman into my bed is going to cost me my kingdom, it's going to cost me my family, it's going to cost me the son that's going to be born, and it's going to leave me disgraced from here on out. Had he known that, he probably wouldn't have made that decision. Of course he experienced forgiveness. But how many of us are sitting here today living with consequences of past actions? And when it comes to breaking the covenant of marriage, those consequences are big. They're great. David's advice would be, think about it. Don't just play the previews in your mind. Think about, before you ever get yourself out on the ledge, think about what you're going to do for 13 years, I worked with college students and a lot of college students would come into my office. They were a couple and what they wanted to do was not what they wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? When it came to their sex life, they wanted to have it, but they knew it was wrong and they didn't want to have it. So they would come to me for advice and say, what do we do? And I would say the first thing you have to do is decide today before you're on the couch, before you're in the back of the car, before you're in the dorm room, make the decision today. And teens I wish somebody would have told me this as a teenager. Make the decision today what you're going to do when you find yourself in that situation. When you find yourself in a situation where you really want to do something really bad, because that's natural, but you're not in a context where it's right, think about how you've already decided that your body is going to be used to honor God. I wish as a teenager somebody would have pulled me aside and said that. Think about your body needs to be used to honor God. So make that decision before you ever get there. Before you ever find yourself in the place where you've got to decide, pre-think it. Now for us grown-ups, pre-think what you're going to do when you find yourself tempted. We're all humans. We can all be tempted. I mean, just look around at creation. We can be tempted. It can happen. But think about and decide, before you ever find yourself there, decide, I'm going to keep this covenant of marriage no matter what. If everybody that's walked down that path would have thought that before they got there, I think you would see a lot less marriages destroyed, a lot less lives destroyed. Anytime that I feel personally tempted, I think back to Billy Graham. That'll, that'll kill it right there, won't it? Think of Billy Graham. Okay, I'm all right now. I'm okay. No problem, God. I got it. But I think, back, I think back about Billy Graham saying, however old he was at the time, 70-something years old, saying, I look back on my life and I remember the faithfulness I've had to my wife in keeping that covenant of marriage. And I think, I want to be like Billy Graham. I want to get that old and say, I made it. I did it. Pre-think what you're going to do when you find yourself in that situation. Now, we're human. People goof up. People mess up. People fall. People break the covenant of marriage. That's a reality. It's wrong. But don't misunderstand. There's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. Let me talk about forgiveness first. First. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it, no matter how many times you've messed up and broken a marriage covenant or messed up with your body sexually, no matter how many times God can forgive you, God can restore you, God can take you back and put you where you were before. God can and will do that to any person that seeks it and asks for it. But there are consequences to actions that you will have no control over. If I decide my cash flow is a little bit lower than I need it to be, and I leave here today and I stop by Food Lion and I request thousands of dollars out of their safe with my handgun, and I go in and say, give me some money, and they give me all the money and I take it, what happens when Brian, the cop that came up here last week, comes to my house? He's going to arrest me. He's going to take me to jail. I'm going to go on trial. I'm going to go to prison for armed robbery. And then, if that happens, I promise you, I will be on my knees in the prison begging God to forgive me. Will God forgive me? Yes, he will. No matter how much money I took, no matter what I did, God will forgive. But will God bust through the walls of that prison and pull me out just because I've asked him to forgive me? No. Those are called consequences, and I don't have any control over those. God gives forgiveness to anybody that asks, but that doesn't mean there's not consequences to live with afterwards. And David would say, it's going to cost you more than you want to pay because you don't understand what consequences are going to come because of your moment of indiscretion. God will forgive you. David experienced it. You can experience, but you've got to understand there's heavy, heavy consequences to that kind of action. David would also say, It's not just lust. Some people might say, I'm just looking. I'm just taking a look. David would say, it's not just looking. It's not just lust. Shut it down. There's no such thing as harmless fantasy in regards to, to a person other than your spouse and David would say shut it down in your mind before it comes out don't justify it by saying it's just a few conversations it's just a couple of emails a couple of instant messages text messages it's no no big deal I can stop at any time and David would say shut it down in your mind before it goes somewhere you don't want it to go our thoughts are powerful things A lot of things happen in our lives because of our thoughts. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a big difference between looking and lusting. Jesus said, do not lust, do not look upon another person who's not your spouse lustfully. Because if you do, spiritually, you've already done it. What Jesus was saying with the word lust is, don't play it out in your mind. That's why he said it was dangerous, because it'll put you on the ledge. There's a difference in looking and admiring beauty and saying, God, nice job on that one. Great. There's a difference in doing that and gawking and looking and running fantasies. There's a huge difference. Admiring, admiration, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not sin. But when it comes to lust and desire, and look number two, and look number 10, and fantasizing, and strategizing, that's where our thoughts become a preview to our actions. Every bad thing I've knowingly done, I've thought about it first. It's been rare that I found myself in the middle of somewhere going, oh, this was wrong. Most of the time, and probably most of the time in your life, you think about it first. It all starts in our minds. That's why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote two thirds of the books you read in the New Testament, said this in Philippians chapter four. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And you know something that gets people on the ledge more than anything else? Men, especially, are these things? That gone it? You know what that is? Somebody in first service said I couldn't see what you're holding up. It's a mouse. Okay. Put your glasses on. This can put people on the ledge where they're thinking about things that are so far from reality, where they're comparing their spouse, their wife, their husband to something they see because they're clicking around with this. And David says, it's not just lust. This thing that you think is harmless, this thing you think is just a look, David would say, all I was doing was doing the uh, pre-B.C. Equivalent of clicking on a picture. He was just looking over the ledge. He was just looking on a rooftop. And look what it led to in his life. And he would say to us, it's not just looking. Because looks can lead to actions. Another thing David would say is covering up sin only makes it worse. David messed up. He blew it, but he didn't confess it. In fact, David went to great lengths to cover it up. And if he could talk to all of us, he would say, if you've messed up, if you're in the process of blowing it right now, you need to come clean. You need to tell the truth. You need to confess it. The Bible in 1 John 1, verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. David didn't do that. He didn't confess. He tried to cover up instead. And then one day in David's life, his spiritual mentor named Nathan shows up to tell David a little story. And he tells David this story. And he says, David, there, I want to tell you a story about a poor man that had one little lamb. And he loved that little lamb like it was his own child. His whole family loved it. They took care of it. And then there was this rich man up on the hill. And this rich man had a whole bunch of lambs, this rich man had plenty. But this rich man had a guest come in, and he went and got the one lamb of the poor man and slaughtered it for the guest. And David was furious and said, who is this man? Because he needs to die. And his friend Nathan looked at him and said, that man is you. You're the one that did what I just told about. And David was broken. Listen to what Nathan said to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God desires to give us more than we could ever ask or imagine. Do you want a better marriage? Ask God for it. Do you want to stop living your life on the ledge? Ask God. Do you want to stop looking at things that put thoughts into your mind that aren't reality, that are just previews to your actions? Then ask God for it. Are you single and thinking, am I going to have to live the rest of my life this way? Ask God for it. Because just like he said to David, he says to us, if this is too little, I will give you even more. And Nathan goes on to tell David what his consequences are going to be. And that's all in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And they're pretty heavy consequences. At the end of it, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. David was forgiven, but he paid some pretty heavy consequences. So those are David's lessons from the ledge. If he could come here and tell us, what it was like to be on the ledge, I think those are some of the things that he would say. So how do we keep ourselves from being right here to where the next step we take could be the one that plummets us to a point of no return? You ever been to Grand Canyon? Isn't that a cool place? I've been a few times and they've always got these rails up, right close to the ledge. They've got these rails up. What it's for is to keep people like me who like to get on the ledge and really, really look over down the bottom of the canyon. It keeps people Dummies like me from, from doing it, but I jump them anyway and go over and look and scare my wife to death. But those rails are there for a reason. They're there to keep people from falling over the ledge. So if you're walking up towards the canyon, you trip and fall, you might hit your head on the rail, but you're not going to go over and plummet to the canyon floor and die. The rails are there for protection. What kind of rails are in your life to keep you from going over the ledge? I've got a few in my life that I've put up and said, here are my rails. It's going to keep me off the ledge. It's going to keep me from plummeting to my spiritual death. See, when I stand out here, and if Haley just reached up here and grabbed my hand, you'd just pull me right down. It would be easy. Just pull me right off the ledge. Just pull me right over, and I would fall. So if we live our lives out here spiritually and morally, it's pretty easy to fall. But when we put up some rails that say, I'm not going past right here, we're not as likely to fall. Here's some rails I put in my life. Yours might be different. One rail, I put the relationship with my wife above every other human relationship on earth, including my children. There's a rail. That's one rail that keeps me off the ledge. I don't have lunch or ride in a car or have dinner with a female other than my wife. Never alone, ever, ever. I don't share the details of my marriage with anybody else, especially someone of the opposite sex. I don't exchange emails and conversations with someone of the opposite sex that my wife does not know about. I commit to having a de-stressing activity in my life because we all need to de-stress, and many times bad decisions are made at the height stress. I commit to cultivating my relationship with God because that relationship will reflect the relationship that I have on earth with my wife and with everybody else. Another rail I have is my wife is allowed to look at my computer anytime she wants. The history won't be cleared out. The emails won't be deleted. She can look and read anything on my computer at any time. I commit to not viewing sexually explicit material on my computer or on the television. Look how far I am from the ledge. Because all these things I don't do perfectly. I could blow it. I could mess up on any of these. I could click and look at something I'm not supposed to look at. I could have an inappropriate conversation. I'm human like everybody else. All those things could happen. But because of all these rails that exist between where I've decided I'm going to be in the ledge look how much harder it's going to be to fall over. Look how unlikely it is. If I mess up here and just look at something I'm not supposed to look at and I fall, I'm still a long way from the ledge that's going to send me plummeting to my death. But if I choose to live all the way out here all the time, out of balance bobbling all it takes is one little mistake one little look one little i think i will and then you're falling to the bottom of the canyon floor spiritually and relationally and it's over and you're starting on consequences that you don't want to have to live with the reality is today probably opened some wounds for some people some of you are probably sitting there thinking oh that hurts because i went through what i just saw on the screen and somebody did that to me or i did that to somebody That's not what today is about, is to open up old wounds. Today is about keeping people off the ledge. To learn some lessons from somebody else who lived on the ledge and lived to regret it. If you are one of those people who stepped over the ledge and plummeted to the bottom of the canyon, may you feel the forgiveness that God offers to every person. May He give you the strength to deal with the consequences that are going to come with it. And for those of you who hear the story of Billy Graham and say, I want that to be me, I pray that God will give you the strength to put up the railings in your life that will keep you off the ledge.